So today's reading is from Mark chapter 10, verses 46 to 11, verses 26. Um, then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartinius, that is the son of um, Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus said, uh, Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tie there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell him, The Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead um, and those who followed shouted, Hosanna. Blessed is the one, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, it is not written, is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you had cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself yourself into the sea um, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Thanks, guys. What an interesting passage, eh? Like it's... It feels like it's all over the place, um, but that's 
like those are the fun ones to kind of take apart. So we pray and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thanks heaps for your word. Thank you that sometimes it is really um, intriguing and confusing and um, hard to understand. But thank you that those uh, times and those passages also um, reveal the most to us or can reveal the most to us. We pray today that you'll um, help us to understand this passage and we pray that it will um, affect the way that we see the world. Amen. So I hope you've been enjoying the run through of Mark we've been doing. As I said earlier, we're on the home stretch now. And when I, I think when I first started preaching through Mark, when we first started preaching through Mark, I was kind of like, yeah, I know the Gospels. And you might have been like that too, like preaching through another Gospel or listening through someone else preach through another Gospel is maybe not the most exciting thought, like, if there's any part of the, the Bible that you know, it's probably the gospel. But as we started to go through it, I did see what I expected to see, I guess. Jesus was healing, Jesus was teaching, Jesus was being a nice guy. But I saw a lot of surprising things too. Like sometimes the miracles weren't quite what you'd expect or how you'd expect him to do it. Or sometimes he'd teach in a way that actually made it hard for people to understand. Or sometimes Jesus was just a bit sassy, for lack of a better word. And that's one of the ways, I guess, that we have an uncontainable God. He's very predictable on one hand, and then at the same time, he's totally unpredictable and totally surprising. And I think that's especially true in this passage. As Jesus finally approaches Jerusalem, which is the place he's been heading the whole time, and the place he's going to do whatever it is he came to do, he enters it in a way that is totally, totally expected and then also totally surprising. And today's surprise, if you were following along with the Bible reading, is kind of wrapped up in this really strange fig tree package. But when we figure it out, I think it's, really important, it's a really important surprise for us to hear and for us to understand and be reminded of because especially of what's been going on in the past couple of years. Okay, so let's jump in. At the start of our passage, verse 46, Jesus is passing through Jericho, which is a bit northeast of Jerusalem, so it's not too far, and he's close to his big arrival in Jerusalem with his disciples and with a big crowd, it says. And then on the side of the road is a blind man named Bartimaeus, and we've seen Jesus heal lots of blind people in Mark now, and often their physical blindness is contrasted with their spiritual insight. So they kind of know who Jesus is more than the people around them. And that's the same for this story as well. The last time, um, this is actually the last time Jesus heals a blind person in Mark. So we get like a little hint that soon we might see the full picture of who Jesus is. So the blind man calls out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd tries to silence him for whatever reason, but he's adamant. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus does, and he says, your faith has made you well. And then the blind man joins the crowd and continues on the way to Jerusalem. So it's kind of similar to a lot of the healing miracles we've already seen. But what's interesting in this story 
is that this is the only time that someone calls Jesus the son of David in Mark. And what that title refers to is most likely the Old Testament promise that God would choose one of David's descendants and that that descendant would establish a house in God's name and God would establish his throne forever. So the son of David was expected to establish God's house. And since that promise, and maybe even more since the fall of Israel, all the pious God-worshipping Israelites would have been waiting for this son of David to come and restore this house, restore God's house. And Bartimaeus thinks that he's found him. This is the guy who will restore Israel. We've heard a lot of um, people have different ideas of who Jesus is in Mark. So some said he was a prophet. Some said he was Elijah or John the Baptist. Um, Peter said he was the Christ. And some were more right than others. But is Bartimaeus right? Is Jesus the son of David, the restorer of Israel? In chapter 11, Jesus and the disciples and the crowd continue through Bethany to the Mount of Olives, which is just east of Jerusalem. So they're just right outside now. And Jesus sends two of his disciples to get a random cult from an unsuspecting cult owner or donkey owner, or maybe just a few of the guys who were standing around there, and they seem okay with it. And so they get the cult, they bring it back to Jesus. Jesus rides on it, and the disciples and the crowd throw their cloaks and branches on the floor, uh, on the like path that Jesus is walking down. And they all shout, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. So to us, everything that's going on probably seems a bit all over the place. Why the cult? Why the branches? Why the shouting? But to them, it seems like they knew exactly what was going on. It seems totally expected. The cult was the animal of Israelite kings. And what's probably in their mind is a prophecy in Zechariah 9, where the king would come riding on a colt and looks forward to this final king that will restore Israel. The cloaks and probably the branches are how Israelites paved the way for a king's inauguration. You can get that from 2 Kings chapter 9. And the shout of Hosanna is from Psalm 118 which is a blessing for everyone heading into the temple. And it was sung as a sign that God accepts the pilgrim that's coming in. So when you pull all that together, all, this old, 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 all these Old Testament references, it seems like the people and Jesus know what's going on. Jesus is the son of David, the Messianic king, blessed by God, and what they expected was him to come and establish God's house. So the crowd cheers and they celebrate and they sing as Jesus, the son of David, their king, the one they've been waiting for, finally arrives in Jerusalem, the royal city. And the picture that's in Psalm 18 is that the procession ends in the presence of the altar in the temple. So in verse 11, Jesus heads into the temple as the Davidic king. And when he arrives, 
it's quiet. Nothing happens. The crowd mysteriously disperses. It doesn't say where they go. The temple's empty and it's getting late. And so Jesus leaves again. It's a bit of an anti, it's a massive anticlimax, actually, considering that whole entrance, everyone cheering, and then suddenly nothing. The son of David finally arrives, but he kind of just comes and goes like a breeze. So maybe he's not the son of David. Or maybe if he is the son of David, he's not the son of David that they imagined he would be. So what's going on? We come to the last section of our passage. In verse 12, Jesus is re-entering Jerusalem the next day. So he's left after his first entrance, coming back in the next day, after his triumphal and anticlimactic entrance. And on the way, he's hungry, so he's looking for fruit. Strange to think that these are related, but we'll kind of figure out how, hopefully. So uh, verse 12, Jesus is back on the road to Jerusalem. He sees a fig tree in the distance. And from far away, he can see that it's in leaf. So he approaches it to see if it's also got fruit. But of course, it doesn't have fruit because Mark tells us it's not the time for figs. And so Jesus curses it. Super surprising. Surely it's not the tree's fault that it's not fig season. And on top of that, he doesn't just curse the tree until it bears fruit, or he doesn't just curse the tree for one season, but then like next season will be restored. Mark points out that it's cursed forever. Then verse 15, he goes back into the temple. And now it's filled with people, but not people that are worshipping and praying and repenting, but with people that are selling and buying. And so he flips the tables and he scatters the economy of the temple and then he starts teaching them. And he says this, this famous line, is it not written, my house will be, a, will be called a house of prayer for all nations? but you've made it a den of robbers. So they've perverted the house of God. And then Jesus leaves the temple again. From verse 20, the second half of the the fig story or the ending of the fig story, they're going back into Jerusalem the next day, they pass the fig tree again and they're surprised to see it withered. And then Jesus teaches them about faith, um, that when you pray and you don't doubt, your prayers will be answered. And as you pray, you should forgive others as well, so God forgives you. So on the surface of it, it seems like it's just two random stories kind of smushed together. Maybe Mark just wanted us to see these two stories because they were really important. And he's basically just saying two things. One, the temple system was corrupt, and so Jesus overturned it. And two, if you pray and believe hard enough, you get what you want. That's what it seems like on the surface. But there's two things that should prompt us to look deeper than that. One is that this is one of those stories where Mark cuts one story into another story. So verses 12 to 14, you have the first part of the fig tree story. Then 15 to 19, you have the temple story. And then verses 20 to 25, you have the second part of the fig tree story. And we've seen a few of them now. 
And we know that when Mark does that, it might look like on the surface, these two stories are unrelated, but really he's presenting a really kind of deep or rich idea that neither story on its own can tell. And the second reason why we should probably dig deeper is that the prayer thing just doesn't seem true. If you've been a Christian for a while, you've almost certainly prayed for some wild things, right? You've just like really wanted something you think, I'm just going to pray for it, see if God gives it to me. And you probably haven't gotten them. And maybe the passage is saying that's because you didn't believe fully. You had some doubt. That's why you didn't get what you prayed for. But also, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've prayed for some wild things and you did get them, even when you didn't believe that you would. And that would seem to contradict what this passage says. Even assuming that what this passage says on the surface is true, what happens if you just get two Christians, both with unwavering faith, praying for two opposing things? Does God just alternate between who he gives what to? Does he not grant either of them their prayers or does he create some world where both of their prayers are true? And wouldn't that just make God like a genie that you can manipulate and use to grant your wishes if you just believe hard enough? So those two things should make us think that this passage is actually saying something deeper than what it seems like on the surface. So if it's not the season for figs, as Jesus or as Mark tells us here, what season is it? That's the question that we're trying to answer and figure out in these two weird passages. I think the key to understanding it is understanding Jesus' teaching in verse 17 when he drives the people out of the temple. When he says, my house will be called the house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers, he's quoting from two Old Testament prophets. So my house will be called the house of prayer for all nations comes from Isaiah 56. And that prophecy is about a time in the future when God's temple will be the home and the security for all the faithful people of the world. So no longer will your ethnicity keep you out of God's temple. doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile in this time or for any other reason. You can come into God's presence as long as you're one of his followers. So that's the, that's the prophecy from Isaiah. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Everyone will be welcoming. The second prophecy, but you have made it a den of robbers, comes from Jeremiah 7, where Jeremiah is speaking about um, the temple of his present time, where people thought that the temple was like this stronghold or maybe more like a lucky charm or something that made the Israelites untouchable by their enemies. So as long as they had the temple, their enemies couldn't do anything against them. But God says to them in this prophecy, I've seen how you live. I see that you worship other gods. I see that you oppress the foreigner and the fatherless and that you steal and cheat and murder. And then you run to worship in the temple. 
and you think you're safe. You think the temple will keep you safe. But God says, it won't keep you safe from me. I'll destroy the temple and I'll cast you out. And he did destroy the temple and he did cast them out. The temple that Jesus is standing in, in this passage, is actually a second temple that was rebuilt later. So putting all of that together, what's happening in the centre part of this passage is that Jesus, the son of David, who was meant to establish the house of God, is actually judging the house of God. Because this new temple and this new people have done the same thing that the old temple and the old people did. And so his judgment wasn't expected at all. They think this new temple that they built must be the temple that Isaiah is talking about because it's new. It's not that first temple that was destroyed. It's a new temple. This must be the house of prayer for all nations. But Jesus says it's not. This isn't the house that I'm going to establish. This temple, this house is exactly the same as the old one that was destroyed. It's a house full of people that lie and cheat and oppress and oppress and worship other things. And he says that this temple will actually be destroyed as well. And that sheds a little bit of light on the curse on the fig tree and his surprising entry as the son of David. So the fig tree is often used as a symbol in the Old Testament for um, Israel, but here maybe it's more specifically a symbol for the temple. So the son of David was expected to restore Israel or more specifically to restore the temple, the house of God. But when this son of David comes to the fig tree, he sees that it's not the season for figs. It's not the season to restore the temple. Surprisingly and unexpectedly, it's the time to destroy the temple. And so he curses the fig tree. The temple's going to be destroyed. Judgment's coming on the temple again, like Jesus has judged this fig tree. It's not time to restore, it's time to destroy, just like it was time to destroy in Jeremiah's time. So the natural question is, what's going to replace the temple? The first temple failed, and Jesus says the second temple failed. Will the third temple be any better? What is the third temple? And surprisingly, Mark's been hinting at the answer the whole way through. The temple was the place where God's people connected with God and the place where God's people could experience forgiveness and cleansing and connection. And we learn all that in Leviticus, and that's what the people expected. But what Mark's been telling us right from the start of the gospel is that Jesus is the son of God and that Jesus is God himself. And he was right amongst them and he was connecting with them and he was cleansing them and he was forgiving them. 
And so Mark's been hinting the whole time that we don't actually need the temple anymore. There will be no third temple because no one will ever eat from this fig tree again, not for one season, but ever again, this fig tree will be destroyed. It'll wither to its roots. And Mark's been hinting that the replacement for the temple is Jesus. And we'll know that for sure in later chapters. But for now, we've got enough to figure that out. And that helps us to make sense of these final verses about prayer and forgiveness. When Jesus says, whoever says to this mountain, be thrown into the sea, I don't think he's talking about a generic mountain. Like if anyone prays for any mountain to be thrown to the sea, it'd be thrown to the sea. But probably what Jesus is talking about is this specific mountain that they would have been looking at as they headed into Jerusalem, which was the mountain on top of which the temple was built. So what I think he's saying here is that in the same way as Jesus withered the fig tree, you, the disciples, will throw this mountain into the sea. You'll be part of this destruction of the temple system and the rebuilding of a new system. That, I think, is the most surprising part of this passage. Jesus destroys the temple and replaces it. But in some sense, we, his disciples, join in with that. We partake in that destruction and in that restoration. In some sense, we are also the temple of God, not just Jesus, but us as well. And that's fleshed out in the other letters in the New Testament. Verse 24, unlike the old temple, which was never a house of prayer, which was never the house that the son of David was going to establish, us, the new temple, will really be a house of prayer when all nations will pray to God and God will hear and God will answer the prayers. And verse 25, even the function of bringing forgiveness into the world and making people right in the presence of God, which is centrally done in Jesus, will somehow be conduits of that as well. In some way, we, we will help to bring forgiveness, God's forgiveness, to all of the world. That's what the old temple was supposed to do, and that's what the new temple will do. What a totally surprising passage, I think. I didn't expect to get there when I started the sermon, but what a significant message for us at HVCC as well especially after the last two years. As a church, we, I think I probably speak for most of us, if not everyone, we feel like we're really small right now. We, like a lot of churches, have been hit pretty hard by COVID and we don't have the same vibe that we did two years ago. We can't do the same type of things that we used to do two years ago. We've had to cut back back on a lot. But this passage, in its final big surprise, reminds us that 
it's this church, this little church in Horsley Park and all the other churches in the world that are God's. It's this little church that feels insignificant and that's been exposed over the past two years and that's seemingly really frail. It's this church that God has chosen to replace his grand temple. That giant structure, which was made of huge immovable stones built on a mountain, was replaced by this frail little church here and all the frail little churches around the world. Surprisingly, where the house of prayer that Isaiah was looking forward to and where the house of prayer that the son of David said he would establish. And that has like so many implications for all sorts of things. But the, the one that's on my mind and maybe the encouragement that we need to hear at the moment um, is that you can't be a Christian on your own. The picture we have here is that we all participate together with Christ to become this temple. And together we become this conduit. I don't know if that's the, the perfect word for it, but we're like this conduit for forgiveness for the world. And we're this house of prayer that the world can gather into. We're the new temple. I don't mean that we do all those things ourselves, but Christ, through his church, does those things. Forgiveness, prayer, whatever the old temple did. So I think I want to encourage all the people here in person to keep coming, to keep being a part of church, either here at Horsley Park or somewhere else at another church, even though when we turn up, we might feel small and we might feel like we're actually crumbling and falling apart. But for whatever reason, this is what God's chosen to replace an immovable, huge stone building built on a mountain. And for the people at home who are joining us over Zoom, I want to encourage you guys to come as well if you can. Not so that we can say our numbers are back and that we can feel better about ourselves, but that so we can all share in being part of this new temple. I'm not actually 100% sure on the theology of doing church from home versus in person. Like I'm not super sure what I think on that. But instinctively, we know and we can see it's not the same as regularly gathering as a community of believers. It feels different. It functions different. So if you're able to come back in person, I'd really love to encourage you guys to come back in person. We'd love to have you back with us. Not because we want numbers here, not because we want to feel better about ourselves, not because I want to make you feel guilty. I definitely don't want to make you feel guilty. But because we've been made this surprising part of God's temple which is the new conduit for God's forgiveness out into the world and his new house of prayer, which is establishing forever. So I want to invite everyone to come and be a part of this in person, if possible, be part of this new temple. Okay, let me pray.
Father, thank you for um, helping us think through this passage. Um, help us to understand what it means to be the new temple, for Christ to be the new temple and for us to be a part of it. Um, it's a bit strange and it's unclear. Um, and it's actually kind of hard in this time where we're split up um, for lots of different reasons. But we pray that your church would continue to grow. Uh, we pray that even though we look frail, you'd remind us that um, this is the church that you've chosen and this is how you've chosen to make the church. And we pray that we will continue to follow you um, and that we will continue to uh, worship you and figure out how to be this temple that you've created. Amen. So now it's time for our Q&A. I'd like to call John to come up. Uh, well, starting from the top on Padlet, we've got, first of all, is it quite widely accepted in theological thought that the fig tree is an, uh, analogous to the temple? Uh, or are there ultimate alternate thoughts as to how the fig tree relates in this passage? Yeah. Uh, that's a really good question. Um, <laughs> I wonder if, what, Steve, that feels like a question from Rev Steve who's online. <laughs> Um, actually, yeah, so the answer is no, actually. So the fig tree, uh, I mentioned it really briefly in the sermon, but I probably wasn't clear about it. The fig tree is normally in the Old Testament a sign of Israel as a whole, like the nation of Israel, maybe the land of Israel. Um, and so that's the, that would probably be the default understanding of fig tree in this passage. Um, and so the probably the most common um, thought on this passage is that like Israel, the fig tree seems to be um, is outwardly uh, fertile, or I don't know what the word is. Like it's leafy, so you think it's alive, but when you go up to it, there's no fruit. And so Jesus curses them because it looks like it has. It's got yeah, they do all the rituals, blah blah, blah but they've got no fruit, no real fruit, and so it curses Israel. Uh, so that's probably the common interpretation. But the reason I went more specifically to it being a, a representation of the temple um, is, I guess, one, um, the, the middle part is talking about the temple specifically, it seems. And you, could, you can broaden out the temple to kind of be the centre of Israel. So you kind of, if you take apart the temple, you take apart Israel, basically. So it's, it's not super different, I don't think. Uh, but so one, the centre part's talking about the temple. Two, it says that the fig tree um, will be, it's cursed forever. No one will ever again eat of your fruit. And so I could be making too much of it, but um, Israel is uh, done. Like as in the nation of Israel is no longer God's people. The church is now God's people. But the nation of Israel in, in Romans somewhere is God, God speaks about the um, he hasn't forgotten about the nation of Israel. So I think the fact that he hasn't forgotten about them means that somehow it will bear fruit again. So maybe it's not directly Israel, but the temple system. And then kind of connecting that with the son of David stuff that we talked about, how, about how David would establish the house of God, uh, which probably more means dynasty as opposed to temple. But in the context, it's like talking about Jesus establishing the temple. So I think all those things make it a little bit more, uh, for me anyway, makes it a bit more likely that the fig tree is the temple as opposed to Israel. The common view is that it's Israel. I've gone for the fig tree because of those things. 
Um, and it's not super different. So it's not like, I'm not like limiting it to the temple, but like the temple as a representation of this old system of things that Israel was a part of. So, yeah, hopefully that's clear-ish. I went around in circles. Big, big question. Yeah, big question. Uh, I think the next point was just somebody thanking you for the very encouraging sermon. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and then next one is, what does Hosanna mean? Oh, yeah. So Hosanna, uh, well, off the top of my head, Hosanna is the, the root of the word is to do with salvation, which is actually similar to the root of the word for Jesus' name. So it's like Yeshua and Hoshia or something like that. Steve can probably correct me on, um, on Padlet. But anyway, the root of the word has something to do with salvation and the literal meaning is probably something like save us. So as, as Jesus is going in, they're all screaming, save us. But by the time of the New so that, that's what I meant in the Old Testament, but by the time you get to the New Testament, maybe even portions of the Old Testament, it probably meant more something like a shout of celebration. Um, maybe something like praise the Lord. So like if we say praise the Lord, like literally we're saying praise God, go and praise him. But kind of in meaning, we're just saying, oh, that's exciting. That's great. And so similar with Hosea, it's like uh, Hosanna. It's literally saying something like save us. But in the figurative meaning, it's saying like, let's celebrate. Like, yay. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Um, next one. So you got, doesn't forgiveness require repentance from the other party first? Yeah. Yep. So I guess that's in reference to the last part of the passage where it says, as you stand praying, um, forgive so that uh, I'll, I'll just find it. Um, And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So, uh, again, so a slight, maybe a slightly controversial take on forgiveness. I do think that forgiveness requires repentance. So the, the whole um, you should forgive someone for yourself, like, just, like where you just kind of forgive people without them saying, I'm sorry, or I'm sorry for doing that, or please forgive me. I don't think that exists because like forgiveness is a, an act between two people. So it does require forgiveness of the other person. Um, what I think this is saying is that, well, and, and this passage doesn't contradict that in that it's not saying just really nearly forgive everyone, um, be a nice guy in your head, but it's saying like, if you're holding something against someone, if someone's like said, I'm sorry for this, um, please forgive me. And you're holding it against them. You haven't, you haven't forgiven them, even though they've asked for it. You need to forgive them, as you stand there praying. Otherwise, it says, um, or it says, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins as well. So if you're holding on, if someone's asked you for forgiveness and you just can't or you won't forgive them. Um, that's going to be patterned, it seems, in your relationship with God. Um, so yeah, I, I do think forgiveness requires repentance. And uh, I don't think this passage contradicts that. Um, I think it, yeah, I think you can understand it in that framework as well. All right. Um, next point is just a prayer point for HBCC, Mm. uh, standing and remaining faithful and part of the true 
remnant of truth as well. Yeah, it's it's a bit tough when we're small mm. and feels like we've been a bit smashed by COVID. But mm. uh, <laughs> next one. All right. What what are your thoughts <laughs> of remaining same church? Oh man, I I don't know. Like I do. I, I think I said I'm not really sure on the theology of Zoom Church. Like, there are some benefits to it, right? Like, if you're if you're sick or something, like a few, I know, like Tracy's sick today, and so she can't come in person, but she can join on Zoom. So it's like there's some really good things about it. Oh yeah, 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 yep. And I did I did that sermon from the car one time yeah. when like there was like a massive traffic jam so yeah so there's definitely like benefits of zoom um but i i think when when you don't gather in person you're definitely missing out on something because there's definitely a communal well becoming a christian is not an so i, I <laughs> um so when people say like yeah, like your faith is between just you and God sort of thing. Like it's a private thing that can exist between you and God. I don't think that's true. Like I don't think anyone's faith can exist outside of the community of people that he has called together. So if you think about, say, Israel as an analogy, right, um, you can't have an Israelite. Israelites had to be in Israel and had to come into the temple and had to interact with the temple and with the priests and with the whoever's and the sacrifices to be an Israelite. Like if you lived far off, you still had to make those pilgrimages multiple times a year to do that thing because it was a communal, communal thing, right? So conceptually, you couldn't be an Israelite if you lived on the other side of the world and never came to the temple. You just wouldn't be an Israelite. You might be ethnically an Israelite, but in terms of functioning within the old covenant, I don't think you'd be an Israelite. And so similarly, in the new covenant, God calls us into um, communion with each other consistently, right? Love one another, care for one another, pray for one another, all these one another things, never give up meeting with one another. So conceptually, if you're a, a Christian on your own and you never come into community with other Christians, then like... I don't want to say you're not a Christian, but like you'd have to, you have to wonder how, how's that play out? How can you possibly be a Christian on your own? It kind of doesn't, doesn't exist. Um, and the question is, I guess, like, does com commu community via Zoom, does that count? And I think it's a good, it's a good feeling for when you can't do it in person, but it's not a replacement. I think that's where I stand. So what, what are my thoughts on removing Zoom church? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> there's, there's, there's some good stuff. And I, um, I, know, I know lots of people that join from Zoom otherwise could not come for different reasons. Um, and I'm aware of that. And so I don't want to remove Zoom just to say you must come in person. Um, so I guess, I guess I'm saying I'm not, I don't want to guilt trip people to come in person but I want to encourage people to come in person. And so, yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know. We're, we're, we're talking about that in EMT at some point as well because it is a lot of people have raised it and 
yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's a tricky situation. It's very tricky, yeah. Anyways, um, at least well, it looks like we're going to end it on that. Yeah, so, um, thank you. Good yeah. questions. <laughs>